Chapter 37 of No Quarter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Zoinkmeister Patrick, youtube.com slash Zoinkmeister. No Quarter by Thomas Maine Reed. Phineas Shows the White Feather. Waller's stay in Bristol was of the shortest, only long enough to rest his wearied men and their jaded horses. The night owl was not the bird to relish being engaged in a beleaguered city, which he anticipated Bristol would soon be. The field, not the fortress, was his congenial sphere of action, and though sadly dispirited, his army all gone, he had not yet yielded to despair. He would recruit another, if it cost him his whole fortune. So, to horse, and off again without delay, Hesselrig along with him. London was his destination, and to reach it with such feeble escort a dangerous enterprise for it was but continuing his retreat through a country swarming with a triumphant enemy. With the skill worthy of Cyrus, he made it good, however, going round by Gloucester, Warwick, and Newport Pagnell, at length arriving safe in the metropolis. But what of the citizens of Bristol he had left behind? If they had been despondent on seeing the shattered cuirassier re-enter their city not long after these left, they saw another sight which filled them with dismay. Also a body of horsemen approaching the place, not a skeleton of a regiment in retreat, but the vanguard of a victorious army, that which had won the day at Roundway Down. For as the defeated one had suffered utter annihilation, the western shires, now overrun by the royalists, were completely at their mercy. The only parliamentarian forces that remained there were the garrisons of Gloucester and Bristol, and it was but a question as to which should be first assaulted. The former had already experienced something of a siege, and thanks to its gallant governor, successfully resisted it, while its bigger sister, farther down the Severn, only knew what it was to be threatened. But the Bristolians also knew their city to be better game, a richer and more tempting prize, and that they might expect the plunderers at any moment. So when they beheld the light horse of Wilmot and Byron scouring the country outside, and up to their very gates, they had little doubt of their being the precursors of a larger and heavier force, an army on the march to assail them. Soon it appeared in a formidable array and leaguer all round, for there was more than one army left free to enfilade them. First came up the conquering host of Hertford and Maurice, fresh from the field of Lansdowne. Then, on the Oxford side, appeared Rupert and his freebooters, fire-handed from the burning of Birmingham and red-wristed from the slaughter of Chalsgrove, where, by the treachery of the infamous Uray, they had let out the fire-blood of England's purest patriot. In a very revel of satanic delight they drew around the doomed city, as eagles preparing to stoop at prey, or rather as vultures on quarry already killed, for it had neither strength of fortification nor defending force sufficient to resist them. As already said, Waller going west had almost stripped it of its defenders, numbers of whom were now lying dead on the downs of Wiltshire, as the royalist leaders well knew. So there was no question as between siege and assault, Rupert, soon as arriving on the ground, determining to storm. And storm it was, commenced the next morning at earliest hour. Successful on the Gloucester side, where Rupert himself attacked, and the traitor languished with timid Phineas defended. After all his boasting, the lawyer-soldier let the enemy in, almost without striking a blow. Nor did they pass over his dead body either. He survived the sad day, but never more to be trusted with sword in the cause of a struggling people. Very different was the defense on the southern side, and of different stuff the defenders. There Sir Richard Walwyn with his foresters and Birch with his bridgemen held the ramparts against Hertford and Maurice, not only foiling the attack, but beating them off. In that quarter had been blows enough, with blood flowing in rivers. The Cornishmen were cut down by scores, among them some of their best leaders as Slanning and Turvanian. Alas, all in vain. 
alike to no purpose proved the gallantry of the soldier knight and the staunch courage of the merchant soldier. Unavailable their deeds of valor, for while they were fighting the foe in the front, in the act of putting him to rout, behind they heard a trumpet's sounding signal for parley, and turning beheld a white flag waving from a staff within the city's walls, saw and heard all this with amazement. On their side the assailants were repulsed, and Bristol still safe. Why then this show of surrender? Could it be treason? Birch believed it was, though not on the part of Phineas. He was but vacillating and frightened, Langrish playing the part of the traitor, as the events proved, ending in capitulation. But while Sir Richard and his troops were still in doubt about the purport of the signals, they saw an aide-de-camp galloping towards them, the same who brought the dispatch to Montserrat House at the breaking up of the ball. A verbal message he carried now, command for them to cease fighting. And why? demanded the astonished knight, over voices asking the same, as much in anger as astonishment. For what reason should we cease fighting? We're on the eve of victory! I know not the reason, Colonel Walwind, responded the aide-de-camp, evidently ashamed of the part he was constrained to play. Only that they've beaten us on the Glonstead side and got into the works. The governor asked for an armistice, which Prince Rupert has granted. Oh, you have Rupert round here, have you? I thought as much. This is Langrish's doing, gentlemen, he observed to the officers now gathering around him. We may guess how twill end, in a base, treacherous surrender, probably to be delivered over to the tender mercies of his princely freebooter. Are you ready to risk it with me and cut our way out? Ready? Yes! responded Estance Trevor and the men of the Forester Troop, loudest of all their sergeant. We too! cried the bridgeman, Birch giving them the cue, while others here and there echoed the daring resolve. But the majority were silent and shrank back. It was too hopeless, too desperate, running the gauntlet against countless odds. With the whole garrison agreeing to it, there might have been a chance, but they knew this would be divided in view of the treason hinted at. While they were still in debate as to what should be done, another mounted messenger came galloping up with news which quickened their deliberation, bringing it almost instantly to a close. The enemy had offered honorable terms, and Phineas had accepted them. It was no longer a question of surrender, but a fait accompli. What are the conditions? Everyone eagerly asked, to get answer. No prisoners to be taken, no plundering. Soldiers and all who have borne arms against the king... Let free to march out and away, citizens the same if they wish it. Three days to be allowed the disaffected for clearing out of the city and removal of household effects. After that, a and before it, as the wise ones believed, it would be Boire the Pillager. On its face the bond was fair and reasonable enough, and many were rather surprised at its leniency. Certainly, to one unacquainted with the circumstances, such conditions of surrender might seem more than generous. But knowing the motives, all idea of generosity is at once eliminated. Around to Rupert had come the report of repulse in the southern side. Slanning killed, Trevanion too. With slaughter all along the Cornish line and a likelihood of utter rout there. Besides, two or three scores of distinguished prisoners inside Bristol had to be considered. These no longer on parole, but jailed, and still held as hostages. With these gauges against any attempt at cruel extortion... None could be safely made, and the keys of Bristol were handed over to Prince Rupert by Nathaniel Phineas, in a quiet, consenting, almost amicable way, as might the seals of office from a going-out mayor to his successor. 
How the son of the Elector Platinate honored the trust and kept faith with his word is matter of history. He did neither one nor the other. Instead, disregarded both, basely, infamously. Soon as his followers were well inside the gates, as had been predicted, there was pillage unrestrained. Insult and outrage to everyone they encountered on the streets, women not accepted. This was the way of the Cavaliers, the self-proclaimed gentlemen of England. End of chapter 37. Recording by Zoinkmeister Patrick. YouTube.com slash Zoinkmeister.